Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Welcome to Local Zero. This is the podcast that gives you a guide to taking climate action at the local level. And in this, our second ever podcast, we'll explore the impact of COVID on our energy use and the opportunities that COVID might present for achieving net zero in the future. And that is not a straightforward question. As we'll hear, it's not as simple as just saying COVID is helpful in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, the question is, how many of these trends are just short term and we might just see a rebound to business as usual tomorrow or the next day? So joining us later will be Polly Billington, who heads up the UK's only local government network focused solely on tackling climate change, delivering clean energy, delivering cleaner air. COVID has given us a foreshadowing of what a climate crisis could be like with these kind of inequalities, these kind of uh, economic and health impacts. We've really got to dig in and do this properly. And that means investment in our communities for jobs and for better health. So today we're talking about COVID and net zero, but clearly it's had a lot of effects very close to home. I know my life's changed considerably since March. How about you, Matt? It's been transformational, has that it's affected every aspect of our lives and was felt acutely from the very first day. I remember that kind of oh dear moment. I think it was the day before Johnson announced and I was one of those terrible people online panic buying, you know, left, right and centre and uh, <laughs> yeah, did all the things that I was moaning about. But the question is, you know, how long term are these changes in our behaviour as well? I haven't been out in the car. I think I've, I think I've been out once since March, and it was to to go and get my office chair from the office so I could be more comfortable working from home. <laughs> I, I don't think apart from that, I've probably left the the sort of five kilometer perimeter around my household. It's significantly impacted on my own travel. Uh, but I'm also one of the one of the luckier few because we've got a garden. My kids have been able to play in the garden. We've got enough space in the house that we can work. Clearly, it's affected people around the country very differently. So as always, we've got Fraser Stewart with us here, podcast extraordinaire, our production meister. Fraser, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I think I can echo what you guys have said as well. It does feel like the world's gotten smaller. I feel very fortunate to have had a bike for the majority of this summer. So I was able to get out and see places like around Glasgow and just south of Glasgow that I maybe wouldn't have seen before. 
Um, but on the other side of that, yeah, for sure, it's been peaks and troughs, shall we say, peaks and troughs. For me, it's uh, shone a light on what I prioritise. Would I like to go on holiday somewhere warm? Of course I would. But, you know, yeah, I guess you just put everything under the microscope and you think, can I live with that? Is that a risk I'm willing to take? For me, what I wonder is, will I just rebound to where I was back in you know, late February. But it's not just us. So I was a, I was reading a report, Matt, last week that was released by the Centre for Climate and Social Transformations, or CAST. It's much easier to say. Or, or CAST Centre, if you're from the north of England. <laughs> the CAST Centre, yep. And they've done um, a couple of surveys with just under 2,000 people across the UK looking at, at how this has changed for people around the country. And certainly for for a whole load of people, they've seen self-reported reductions in waste, reductions in travel, like we've just been talking about. Also reductions in consumption. You know, people aren't going shopping anymore. Instead, they're focusing their attentions on outdoor exercise or gardening. I know that my gardens has never looked better. So um, so that's quite, quite nice to hear. But they did acknowledge that there's a huge diversity of experience. Which, you know, as as you can expect, if you've got access to the outdoors, access to a garden, access to areas, then you're going to have a very different experience than if you're living in a a high rise tower block in the inner city. And you hit the nail on the head there, because I think what COVID has done is really shone a light on levels of deprivation. So, I mean, you know, we've we've heard this rumbling on and on around things like school meals and what have you. But your, your point about... The haves and the have-nots, and I think this links back to what we what we will discuss in future episodes um, around a just transition, making sure that that move to a you know a different type of economy, a net zero economy, doesn't leave any one section behind. And I think what we've seen in this kind of public health transition, uh, transition forced by this pandemic, is those with the least are the ones that have been most left behind. And for me, that's that's raised a lot of questions about what we do with the with the climate change and the transition around that. Yeah, and how different parts of society can come together to address that in this transition. I think that's a, an absolutely critical point that we need to we need to look at more. And certainly, as you said, looking at how we can think about the changes that COVID's introduced and look to whether we can harness the good that we've seen come out of this, mitigate against any of the negative aspects, but take that forward. So how can we learn from what we've all been experiencing over the last six plus months and and grow that forwards? Yeah, and I'm hoping all of this will become part of a post-COVID recovery, building back better. And that building back better, you know, not just with your treasury cap on and thinking of jobs and, you know, economic stimulus, and, and that's all very important. But thinking about lifestyle changes and building back better that way, leading into a society where, there are greater levels of well-being across the piece, whether that's built around active travel or, you know, distribution, fairer distribution of resource. And, um, yeah, sometimes I I get out of bed and think positively, you know, that we are going to enter a better world because I don't think things were especially rosy before March 2020, you know, around that. No, I mean, I think think we talk about uh, our net zero transition and how it can be, how it can drive a fairer and cleaner and greener society. We've got to recognise that there are huge problems in the energy system that we have today. It's not, it's not, fair today so how can we how how can we learn from that how can we learn from everything that's covid has exacerbated and please do join us in our conversation so uh use the hashtag local zero on twitter and our handle at energyrev underscore uk and send us any questions you want us to answer through this series and we'll try and get to them as we can 
Hello, I'm uh, Jim Watson. I'm Professor of Energy Policy at the UCL Institute for Sustainable Resources. COVID has been, it's had a very big impact in quite a, a number of different ways. I mean, the obvious one is it's changed the patterns of demand. And overall, even though demand has now rebounded, as I understand it, it's still a bit lower than it was before the pandemic hit. Clearly, our patterns of travel have changed a lot, but also things like using less energy in commercial premises, offices, and more in homes has changed. So it has changed for individual actors, particularly many householders who might end up being spending more on energy, particularly through the coming winter, but also the flip side of that, particularly for people who uh, might have lost their jobs or have lower incomes than they're expecting, a lot more people having difficulty paying their bills. And so that really brings to the four issues of fuel poverty and what we do about that over the medium to longer term. For me, working in a business school, one of the big kind of focus uh, areas is you know, how permanent are these trends? So do you see some of this stuff slowly, you know, shaking out and as reverting back to normal? But you know, similarly, are there some changes that you think are going to persist for the long term? I mean, I think I think the the overall aggregate impact will probably not be as big as we think in the medium to longer term. I think a lot of things will rebound at the aggregate level, but underneath that, some persistence of some of these trends, particularly working from home and people not going to offices as much. I mean, certainly for me and colleagues I speak to, we're, we're obviously lucky we've got the kind of job where we can work from home in most circumstances. And so some of that I think will get more hardwired because it will have gone on for probably a year or more for many people. And so that has knock-on impacts for things like demand, of, demand for energy for travel and things like that. But I think overall, if you look at the graphs, whether you're looking at the global picture or the UK picture, there's quite a bit of rebound now in the overall energy picture. If you look at some Asian economies, the extent of rebound is almost it's almost back to where it was. So going beyond changes to our patterns of use and starting to think about things like efforts to increase the energy efficiency in our homes through insulation or decarbonize our heating systems or indeed increasing the amount of renewable electricity. Have you seen um, COVID having an impact on these kind of broader ambitions that require perhaps planning and, and longer term action and thinking along the supply chain? Yeah, I mean, probably two overall things to say. One is I, I don't think COVID itself and its impact really helps us in the end in the uh, decarbonisation strategy and reaching net zero. I know it's reduced our emissions in a temporary basis, both again globally and in the UK, but it doesn't help in itself. Left to our own devices and hopefully once we get to recovery, this demand will come back, the emissions will go up again. I think where you know, there is an opportunity is clearly what the response to that is. And that's where it's really still unfolding. I just wanted to ask the question about what COVID might mean about unleashing the realm of the possible. And what I mean by that is it's shown us how transformative, uh, what transformative change we can make in a very short period of time. For instance, people not flying you know, and our sky is going quiet all of a sudden, something we thought was just unimaginable. Do you see that as being one of the long-term effects of COVID, that actually identifying that if we see something as a crisis, in this context, a public health crisis, we can fundamentally transform how we live overnight? Is that something that can translate into the climate change um, debate? I'm quite cautious about that. I'd say partly, although both are global crises that require urgent responses, 
they are very different in their manifestations. You know, COVID, we can see case numbers, you can see hospitalizations, very sadly, death rates. Things happen very, very fast. Now, clearly, climate change has a lot of impacts, too, on people's health, on migration, and arguably on, you know, extreme weather, which leads to people losing their livelihoods and even in some cases leaving their lives. But that connection is nowhere near as immediate. From the point of view of learning lessons, we just have to, I'm, I'm quite cautious about how far you can translate those lessons. I also think some of the things you mentioned there, such as flying, yes, I think there's a section of the population who probably have thought about it. Awareness is very high and they maybe will fly less than they would have done otherwise once that's possible. But others, for you know, understandable good reasons, would want to still go on their annual holiday, or they've got hardwired reasons to fly. You know, so cheap flights has meant you can go and visit relatives or places quite often, and you're asking them to suddenly stop doing that. Mm. But stepping beyond that and talking about the energy sector a bit more, what role do you think that the energy sector can play in the wider UK's recovery? Yeah, I mean, clearly they've got a very big role to play. And if you draw the boundary around the energy sector in a quite a broad way, so it includes the trades that upgrade homes, not just those that build power stations and grids, they have a very large role to play. And there are a lot of areas with that require decarbonisation where you can marry you know, action by them, job creation and reducing emissions. But I think the important point is that they can only act within you know, the market opportunities that are there. Policy frameworks need to be there to either create or extend market opportunities, whether it be in home retrofit or clean electricity generation or smarter systems. And then obviously for anything that involves consumers, whether it be buying an electric car or upgrading their home, they've got to have somewhere an ability to pay for that or a mechanism whereby they can borrow money or access cheap finance or have help if if they're on low incomes. So I think, you know, The ability of companies to act is very much a function of the policy environment. And so I'd always refer back to that large in-tray in number 10 Downing Street needing to be cleared a little and some of these announcements need to be made because that will then enable companies to act in the way that we want them to that's aligned with net zero. I think on the finance thing, that's a really important one. Uh, You know, we've got an initiative up here in Scotland, Home Energy Scotland, where you can take these interest-free loans, very long-term loans. That seems like an opportunity for uh, some households to do something is this what the kind of thing you're talking about are you talking about more than in a sort of industry scale where we're looking at green investment bank 2.0 where companies can borrow tens of millions of pounds to deliver major major schemes yeah i think finance is obviously an important part of the picture and often when people are talking about the you know the costs of net zero they're talking in economic terms rather than financial terms you know what are the conditions under which either individuals or communities or companies can borrow money and actually make investments pay. So that is very important. And having cheap finance for some individual households is really going to make a difference between them upgrading their homes or not. I think there also needs to be those regulatory backstops, you might call them, or incentives. So, you know, we have quite a good narrative around uh, vehicles now. 2030, the date by which you have to stop selling fossil vehicles. But we don't have an equivalent backstop around homes yet. There are some, you know, new homes, but on existing homes and so on. And that's really required as well as the access to the finance. And then, of course, again, for some homes and maybe some businesses, direct financial help may be needed. Absolutely. And the focus of the pod, Local Zero, we're looking at kind of local community, grassroots, bottom up kind of solutions to these global issues. 
what can we do? And if we can't do it, what can government do to help us do it? Yeah, I think there is a hell of a lot. And some communities are doing quite a lot themselves. So the burgeoning community energy scene, which I know you, Matt, have have looked at in your research as well, is an important testament to that. But in terms of its tangible impact on our emissions or on our energy, it's still relatively small. I think the local actor that has ability to coordinate or to lead or develop strategies, etc., is the local authority. But what slightly worries me about, you know, the response to COVID is that the dynamic between central and local government is not a particularly healthy one. You know, you can see it in test and trace, you can see it in the way that different types of rules are being either imposed or or negotiated with different local areas. If you think local solutions are important, you also need some local accountability. And the local accountability, for me at least, needs to involve local authorities and local government in some way, whether it be as uh, developers of strategies, consulting local communities, providing help of a local sort to complement what's available nationally. But that also requires central government to let go of Mm. some of the power it has provide extra resources, all those things. And from in the COVID version of this conversation, it's not necessarily going particularly well. And maybe it's something, now we've highlighted it, maybe it's something that the climate agenda can pick, pick up on. But thank you so much. And uh, yeah, hope to see you again soon. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. No, it was great. It was really, really useful insights. And Jim, you don't know how beautifully you've just teed up our next interview right at the end. There. <laughs> So Fraser, you were listening really intently and, and making some notes. What do you think of what Jim said? Yeah, I think the, the big takeaway, as much as Jim maybe isn't overly optimistic, there's an important theme here of remembering that this involves actual the public writ large. It involves people's lives. It involves understanding their needs and how they have access to any potential changes and making sure that we're taking people with us on this journey as well. So it's important to make sure that we're mindful at every stage from policy design to implementation. If we're to take the opportunity that COVID may present now to remember that there's a temptation to run quickly, but we also have to be mindful of taking people with us as well. So heaps to digest there. You're listening to Local Zero with Matt Hannon, Rebecca Ford and Fraser Stewart. Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder that you can reach us on Twitter using the hashtag Local Zero or by tweeting at EnergyRev underscore UK. Remember to send us any questions or thoughts that we might be able to address in upcoming episodes. But moving on, the second half of this episode is an interview with someone who's right at the sharp end of trying to make change happen on climate matters and with real insight into how COVID has impacted that. Hi, I'm Polly Billington. I'm the director of UK 100. And UK 100 is a network of UK leaders, local leaders from across uh, local government and the UK who have made a commitment to 100% clean energy by 2050. And we're the only network and local government that is focused solely on climate, clean energy and clean air. How do you think it's affected cities and communities, not just in the daily lives of the folk living there, but also in their net zero ambitions. You know, it's very easy if you can work from home and you've got enough room and you don't have caring responsibilities and you can afford to keep your house warm as it's getting colder and you've got a garden and you're within walking distance of somewhere where you can have exercise, a lot of middle-class people 
are actually quite enjoying this. A lot of other people are having a really, really, really hard time. And the great danger is that environmentalists wang on, not to use too fine a point, about how we get these benefits and stop thinking about the other things that people really miss. People really miss social interaction. They really miss meeting people other than the people they live with. A lot of people are in real economic difficulties and you know being able to afford to uh, keep a roof over your head and to keep your your family fed are bigger pressures now than they ever have been the idea now of starting to talk to people about paying a little bit more for food that is more sustainably sourced and so forth these things are a long way away from people's priorities so focus on how we can work with what people actually need what they actually need now is jobs security comfortable, safe, secure homes and an environment in which they feel their children and the people that they love are safe and healthy. And that is the way you win a climate argument. When all is said and done on this, do you think COVID is just going to have proven a distraction to local authorities? Well, we're trying or, or to make do sure you that think it could, could, could end up reinforcing the climate agenda? I mean, I'm, I'm looking back, say, you know, we're in 2025. Was it just a footnote? I'm talking in in, yeah. in the context of climate action or not. Where people have already integrated it in, you will see climate-friendly actions being used to meet COVID challenges. And like the low-traffic neighbourhoods are a really good example. You've seen some local authorities try them and drop them within a fortnight because they've seen it as too difficult. One's worth seen, an example. And others are absolutely hanging tough on it and saying... Yeah, it takes a bit of time. You've got to settle in, but it'll be worth it in the end. To be honest, walking and cycling is the easy bit, particularly for places in London. The idea that walking and cycling is the way to tackle connectivity with work in the valleys of Wales, in Derbyshire, right, in small car um, heavy towns like places like Peterborough is for the birds. So the biggest challenge, and this is what people aren't talking about, is how you have a COVID-proof recovery for public transport. We have to get public transport right. If we don't have public transport in our communities, in the rural communities, we will not be able to meet our net zero targets that we've already said to ourselves we should do. We're going to continue to have congestion. We're going to continue to have uh, bad safety records for children and so forth. And we're going to continue to have uh, unhealthy communities. So. When people see the connections between climate and their other objectives, you're in a much better place. I'll give you one example. Dr. Maria Nera is the climate change lead in the World Health Organization. She's brilliant because she says you could actually look at all the climate actions that need to be taken in order to be able to meet the Paris Agreement and measure them for their health impacts. And suddenly you will have a different conversation with politicians. Politicians you normally wouldn't get a meeting with, will suddenly say, what, what do you mean our children will live longer? What do you mean we're going to be able to tackle diabetes and obesity if we do this? What do you mean we're going to be able to increase the life expectancy of people in places that have been highly deprived because they're going to have less bad mental health outcomes because they're going to have work, right? Then you get uh, people get really interested. And where people have had enough time to think about it before this hit, they have been able to see where those things are aligned. 
and they can see where sometimes they aren't. We know that, for example, lockdown is finished. People are frightened to go back on the bus because they're worried about public transport being somewhere where you can, uh, you're more likely to catch it. So people have returned to their cars, which is terrible, right? However, using emergency transport powers, local authorities have been really bold in creating low traffic neighbourhoods. Now that ain't easy. Let me tell you, as an elected councillor, where we've got a low traffic neighbourhood, you get a lot of fury from people who are saying, well, hang on a minute, I can't, I can't drive to my local supermarket and I used to be able to and why do I have to take quite as long? Those things settle down. So we need to acknowledge that those things will change over time. But if you think about the economy having tanked, resources having shriveled, they've got massive public health responsibilities, their own staff are at risk, staying at home, mourning people who they've lost themselves or looking after people who are ill basic delivery of services are adversely affected. You're not going in to mend your own council houses who need repairing because there's a risk of contagion. The impact on education, the next generation. So they're thinking about all of that. And then if any of us come along and go, oh, by the way, would you like to knock out megatons of CO2 from your economy? You'd be unsurprised if you get a bit of short shrift. For local authorities to get the power, to get the resources, to take the action that you're referring to, I guess key decisions have to be made by central government. Do you think central government is willing to make that call? Well, I think there's something that has come out of COVID. And admittedly, you know, I'm always going to see this in sort of the political dimension because that's how I work, right? I'm sure other people will be able to see, you know, the technological advances or, or backwards stuff. But what I've seen is a big tension between national government and local government in England, right? That's been going on in Scotland for some time. It's now come to a head in England where there's been devolution created with directly elected mayors in some of our biggest cities are now saying, no, you can't do like that even though we've got to a point now probably better than we've ever had done on a consensus between national and local government that there is something that needs to be done and they both need to do something about it so for me that i guess the follow-up to that is do you see that the necessary power and money being devolved down to the regional level first and then trickling down to a local level where you can see this kind of grassroots bottom-up action i think your point there about the analogies between the north of england for example and scotland and the, the this push for this power to to make local and regional decisions feels like there's a template potentially for other regions in the UK to follow. Yeah, but it's not working right now, is it? So we're trying to establish a kind of a kind of parallel conversation, which is slightly more polite, maybe a little bit more diplomatic, maybe a bit more long term, establishing some kind of political consensus where we go, right, brilliant. You've legislated for net zero by 2050. That's fantastic. Legislation, as we know from other previous legislative targets like ending child poverty and so forth, are only as good as the frameworks and policies you put in place to make them true. So legislating for net zero sends a very strong signal that that's what you want to happen, but it's not enough on its own. You need to be able to send some other signals. We know as local leaders, we want to do this. We also know you can't do it without us. We may well be the transport authority in our local community. We're certainly the planning authority in our local community to a greater or lesser extent. We are the ones who decide things like building standards where we where we are up to a point, and that, that's where, where I'll get to. We also make uh, decisions about the services that we do the th- services we deliver and the services we procure. We're the ones who make decisions about what kind of fleet we have, how we run our buildings. And we've got a larger kind of bully pulpit is what the the language is in political science, bully pulpit about what we can do with the wider community, both our residents and businesses. So in that circumstance, if the government can't do it without us, 
the government needs to understand what we can do and make sure that either we have to do other things or that they enable us to do it. Because every time local local authorities try to do things that are net zero, they bump up against national regulation, which gets in the way. So, for example, on community energy, there might be limitations on what the off-gen will, will let happen. Highways England drives massive, great big urban motorways through a significant number of local um, areas. And if you're trying to tackle decarbonisation or air quality, Highways England doesn't have an obligation to deal with that. So, therefore, you can't actually deal with deal with the biggest problem. However good your stuff can be, and it is extraordinary what lo- some local authorities are managing to achieve in these circumstances, quite often those there'll be particular particular combination of circumstances which will make their position unique. Nottingham, for example, is one of the very few local authorities that owns its own bus company, so has therefore been able to do more on public transport than many other places. Cornwall managed to secure a devolution deal, like Matt was saying, where they managed to get the power to cap public transport fares, and therefore they've actually seen an increase in the number of people using public transport in Cornwall, one of the most rural places in the country. So when other county councils say, oh, no, we can't possibly do public transport here, and actually say, well, actually think about it creatively, there are other ways of increasing uptake and on public transport by asking for those powers if you are in the conversation with government about devolution deals. So are we looking at very context-specific solutions for different regions or is there a, a broader vision that you can see lots of local authorities being brought into, into, into what they'd like to see for the future and how they would like to drive this change forward at local levels? If we keep talking about everything being bespoke, it's suggesting that everybody is entitled to a Christian Dior gown, right? Now, I might like a Christian Dior gown of my own, but it's not a practical way of saying everyone can have one. Okay, what we can do is make sure there are some standard ways of of going about it. And it's a matrix. You know, everybody likes to think that they're unique, but the uniqueness is the combination of particular circumstances. So so that was what I was I was going to go add there, Polly. I mean, I think that's part of the attraction, isn't it? Part part of the sale pitch is that it can be bespoke. But what you're saying is. If, you if you can treat learn everything bespoke, nothing yeah. will ever get done. You can't yeah. scale up. Look, you can't learn from your neighbours. Exactly. Blackpool and Eastbourne and Brighton have more in common with each other as seaside towns than they possibly have with places um, very close by. But they will also have some shared interest because they've got geographical um, proximity to places right by them, which have got different political environments and so forth. Then you've suddenly realised that what is their energy resource? What are their social needs? What are their economic needs? What are their ambitions in terms of what they want to be able to design for their town? The biggest lesson I would say for anybody working in energy and climate who hasn't really thought about their local council, apart from the fact they paid their council tax and whether they emptied their bins, is they have a set of immediate pressing priorities, even without COVID, that they have to deliver. They have to deliver adult social services. They have to deliver care for young people. They have to empty your bins. They have to keep the lights on, those kind of things. Now, if you've got climate-friendly solutions to those challenges, you're more likely to get traction inside local government rather than if you come along and say, hello, I'd really like your help in saving the polar bear. Because polar bear is not in their list of priorities. And so one thing I'm really hearing from you, Polly, is that local authorities have a central role to play but certainly they're overburdened and need support. And more than that, it's not just down to them, right? It's working in collaboration with others like the regulator with each other. Who else do you think needs to be part of that picture in driving change? 
Well, I think obviously national government needs to be, but I think businesses have got a really important part to play. The energy sector generally has got to do some really serious engagement with local authorities. I think up until now, I think somebody once told me that National Grid only really saw itself as having some kind of six customers because they were the big generators and they were the ones they had to deal with. Well, obviously, when we're going to a multi-generator situation with a decentralised energy system, then you've got loads more people you have to engage with. And that's not really how our energy system has worked. In 2026, it's going to be 100 years since the National Grid was established. And the National Grid was established having built up from a set of small decentralized energy systems and they thought actually this is no good we need that these are great where they are but we need to have standardize this like matt says and make sure everybody can benefit so we don't know what a national grid should or could look like that will be suitable for a net zero world yet or if somebody does they haven't explained it yet to the kind of people who make decisions and that's the really key thing so bringing it all together, do you think that cities and communities will be able to step up to the challenge and, and play a role in the green recovery if we can start to align these outcomes? Given encouragement and given the sense that this could be the national purpose that brings us together, I think COVID has had some opportunities to bring us together as well as drivers apart. What people really need is some hope on the other side that we can reset things a little bit. And I think that's where local leaders and national leaders could come together and say, okay, we need to bury our differences on these things. We know we've got to tackle COVID. But COVID has given us a foreshadowing of what a climate crisis could be like with these kind of inequalities, these kind of uh, economic and um, health impacts. So we've really got to dig in and do this properly. And that means investment in our communities for jobs and for better health. A lot of this will need to be done at local level, partly because local leaders are the ones who are better placed to build a public consent and support for tricky things. You know, it's the place in which you live is so important to your own well-being. When somebody starts mucking about with it, you want to be able to go and knock on their door and bother them about it. And that's what local government is for. So working together, building community, building bridges, creating jobs, and that little bit of hope that you mentioned earlier. Critical yeah, we'll a bit of that, yes. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Polly. That's been absolutely fantastic. And now it's time for our final segment, Future or Fiction. In this segment, Fraser pitches an exciting and innovative net zero technology idea. Becky and I have to decide if we think it's the future of the planet or if it's completely in Fraser's imagination. Thanks very much, Matt. Yes, so last episode, I want to note just for the record that both of you guys got the question wrong. We were talking about space-based solar, which is in fact the future, allegedly. But this week, we have something a, a little closer to home. So this week's technology is called human energy. So humans move all the time and use increasingly small devices that require very little power to operate, smartwatches, etc., etc. With this in mind, scientists have designed a wearable microsystem that turns human movement into energy to power things like smartwatches. Future or fantasy? Mm. So I actually know a little bit about this. <laughs> So I know that this is called piezoelectric 
And it's where you turn compressions or tensions in a material into energy. And so this is one of the very few things that I learned during my PhD, which has turned out to be quite useful. <laughs> All right, she, right, so she's done a PhD on it. Great, okay. Uh, I've got a massive disadvantage here. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've not, seen it, I've not seen it applied in the real context. I've seen it applied in little things like where they've had, um, you know, like piano steps on the walkway and people tread on them and it generates sound. Um, so I guess so similar concepts have something similar with a dance floor as well which would kind of the kinetic motion would set off the lighting yeah and do you know why I got really interested in this is because so when I started my PhD I desperately wanted to become a ski designer I did, clearly something <laughs> happened along the way but it's a, it, the reason I learned about this technology was because there was talk about it being applied in skis so that the faster you were traveling and the more vibrations that you could then harness that energy and use it to create additional tension in the skis so that's why I learned about it in the first place um, I've never seen it being applied in the context that you're talking about Fraser but I can't imagine it's too much of a leap to say that it is indeed the future so but hang on before we go to the big reveal uh you were saying for, for what type of application fraser so but in this case um in this case we're talking about a micro system as in a wearable system something that you would have about your person right. that would convert your movements into energy to then be used to power small appliances about your person yeah okay so but for instance i know that they did this didn't it's not wasn't rolex it was another another watch company who did this with kinetic motion and I think would charge the, the watch battery. I think you're right. Mm, I'm potentially talking rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I ought to fact check myself there, but I seem to remember it's one of those things you look for the catalog on a plane, uh, you know, plane journey on those years ago when we used to go on those things. Um, you could, you know, <laughs> is this ringing a bell for you guys or not? I don't want to. I, I, I don't, don't want to give the game away. I don't want to give the game away. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why you were looking at me blankly. Okay, right. I'm. I'm going. I'm going for uh, a yes, but I, I don't think it's probably for the electrical items you're talking about. I don't think it's commercially viable today but I, i'm sure people are looking into it so that's a future from matt is it a future from becky yeah yeah a future from me very unsurprising since we somehow have an expert in this field on the car as well <laughs> <laughs> and was going to be one of the engineers yeah. doing this for skis so in, right. in this incarnation researchers in the uk have developed a knee brace that collects electrons while you walk as your knee bends metal veins vibrate like a guitar string to produce electricity that can then connect to a small watch a small battery to power small physical appliances thanks fraser for that and thanks to everyone else for being with us we release new episodes every second thursday today is thursday the 19th of november so the next episode will be in your feed the first thursday in december Please subscribe so you get Local Zero automatically downloaded to your feed. Spread the word, tell people around you about this exciting new podcast and everything that you're learning from it. Also, we can answer your questions. Contact us on Twitter with the hashtag LocalZero and at EnergyRev underscore UK with anything you want to know about climate change and energy and local solutions. And we'll do our best to answer all your questions in the future episodes. Next time, we are looking at the path to net zero at the city level. We'll be focusing on Glasgow, which is an especially interesting pertinent case to us. So join us then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, bye, bye.
produced by Bespoken Media.